Welcome to Neurology Journal Club, Alzheimer's Disease Biomarkers. The Journal Club podcasts are developed in collaboration with That Point of Care and Projects and Knowledge and are part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Biogen MA. In this episode, Raymond Scott Turner and Bradford Dickerson discuss a study associations of plasma phosphotau-217 levels with tau positron emission tomography in early Alzheimer's disease by Janelise et al. and the editorial Rapid Progress Toward Reliable Blood Tests for Alzheimer's Disease by Thiessen and Rebinovici, recently published in JAMA Neurology. Are there viable blood tests on the horizon to make diagnosis and particularly early diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease possible? Doctors Turner and Dickerson look at this exciting field that may also enable development of better therapeutics for the disease. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at journalclubpodcast.com forward slash AD1. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Turner is a professor of neurology and director of the Memory Disorders Program at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. Dr. Dickerson is an associate professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School and director of the Frontotemporal Disorders Unit at Massachusetts General Hospital in Charleston. I am your host, Candace Hoffman. Let's join our discussion. Dr. Turner and Dr. Dickerson, thank you for joining me today to discuss biomarkers in Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's disease affects about 7 million people in the United States, and mild cognitive impairment appears to affect about 20% of those over age 65. Um, a paper from Jenna Leeds et al. and an accompanying editorial by Thiessen and Rabinovici in JAMA Neurology took a look at the advances in reliable blood tests for the disease that are coming down the pike. Um, before we dive into these and, and get a discussion on the biomarkers, let's talk about where we are. How is Alzheimer's disease currently diagnosed? Dr. Turner. Well, thank you for the invitation. Uh, Alzheimer's is currently diagnosed starting with a thorough medical history from the patient, including other medical diagnoses and current medications. Obviously, we inquire about cognitive issues, functional issues, and any associated behavioral problems. Next, we corroborate the medical history from someone who knows the patient well, usually a family member or informant. Sometimes we get a very different story. Sometimes we get a similar story. Sometimes the patients have something called anosognosia, which uh, the families may report as denial or sort of lack of complaints or symptoms. Um, but when we do the testing, then we start to see cognitive issues as well as functional and behavioral problems. It's important to inquire about a history of stroke or TIA, traumatic brain injury, falls, tremor, sleep disorders, weight loss, incontinence, depression, anxiety, apathy, et cetera. And then we launch into the physical examination, which should include a complete neurologic examination and cognitive assessment. We often use in our clinic uh, short cognitive tests, such as the MMSC, the Mini Mental State Exam, or the MOCA, the Montreal Cognitive Assessment. These are brief tests of cognitive function. But uh, any uh, briefer cognitive test would be welcomed by uh, any clinician who evaluates the patient. There are shorter tests, for example, the 88 or clock drawing test, or other shorter instruments to assess cognition. We uh, recommend getting blood tests, including thyroid function, vitamin B12, RPR, 
perhaps HIV and possibly Lyme test as well. And then we order a neuroimaging study, either a CAT scan or MRI of the brain to rule out strokes, possible subdural hematoma or other hemorrhage, normal pressure hydrocephalus. We can get a uh, more detailed uh, quantitative and volumetric assessment of the MRI, which may be helpful. For example, in looking at medial temporal lobe atrophy or hippocampal atrophy uh, on the MRI scan, which would uh, suggest uh, early Alzheimer's or diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. And then we start, uh, if we have any and can get any biomarker information, this can also be helpful in the diagnosis. Dr. Dickerson, anything to add? I think that was a beautiful summary. I think that um, it's important to recognize that the history taking is often one of the biggest challenges. Uh, as Dr. Turner mentioned, the patients have uh, widely varying awareness um, of their symptoms. Some of them come in complaining about problems with finding words and being able to talk, and they're right on the money. That's the thing that we see when we test their abilities. Um, others don't think there's anything wrong with them and may actually argue with uh, their family members about uh, their perspective on whether this is just normal for someone their age. And the family member can clearly describe significant memory lapses and sometimes difficulty doing tasks that the person used to be able to do as second nature. So, you know, I think the challenge is for many primary care physicians in particular, if you are trying to get this information from the patient, you may get completely inaccurate information. And there's not often a lot of space for an informant, a family member who knows the person well, to speak confidentially in a primary care office. Um, they're often, if everyone's lucky, they're sitting in the same office together, in which case many family members may not be willing to state the facts of what they're observing. So I think it can be very challenging just to get an accurate history um, and then, you know, a lot of the next steps in the process that Dr. Turner outlined are really uh, have to be interpreted in the context of that history. So if you don't have that strong foundation to begin with, I think it can make it very challenging to interpret the results of cognitive testing or the initial um, diagnostic tests such as brain scans that we typically get. And, and this is one of the first barriers to uh, getting evaluation uh, in a memory clinic because the patient may not be aware or deny their problems. And family is often willing to go along with that, and then the primary care providers are also willing to go along with that as well and won't do any screening or testing. There has to be a lot of fear involved, too, on the part of the patient. Even if they do think that they are having some cognition problems, they probably don't want to know, <laughs> I would there, imagine. Well, there's a group of patients who very much would like to know and a group of patients who very much would like not to know. Right. <laughs> avoid any evaluation or testing. Right. I can, I can understand that. Um, of course, the gold standard would be a blood test. Yes, you have it. No, you don't. So are there any biomarker tests available now, and do you use them? Uh, is, let's start with Dr. Dickerson. Sorry. This is the biomarker tests for Alzheimer's disease and related disorders is a hot area of active research. And I think the challenge is that there are uh, often high-quality studies that are reported out and described in the media that may still be a ways away from something that we can use in clinical practice. Um, so I think the field has really seen a revolution over the last decade or more in terms of proteins that can be measured in the spinal fluid and proteins that can be measured with PET scans that tell us about the amyloid plaques and the tau-related neurofibrillary tangles that are the core molecular biological features of Alzheimer's disease in the brain. And 
the cerebrospinal fluid markers are generally accessible and reimbursed in clinical practice, and many of us use them to help with the diagnostic evaluation. Um, the PET scans are approved now by the FDA, but not reimbursed by most payers except for the VA healthcare system uh, will reimburse for some amyloid PET scan studies. And then the blood-based biomarkers are still uh, almost entirely in research, although there's one of them that has been approved or uh, that measures amyloid in the blood and uh, is still just being evaluated from the perspective of clinical practitioners. Uh, I personally am not aware of anyone that's used it yet, so I don't have experience with it, but I look forward to gaining some experience with it and figuring out whether it seems like it's uh, something that we would want to consider as part of clinical practice. But I think most people in the field are still a bit skeptical that those are ready for prime time. Mm -hmm. Dr. Turner? Yeah, we um, have made major strides in biomarker development in the last 10 to 20 years in Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. This is in contrast to the lack of relative lack of progress in developing new therapeutics. Um, but I think developing the new biomarkers is going to get us, get us one day in the future towards new therapeutics. I should mention that the uh, biomarkers are currently divided into what's called A, T, and N categories by the NIA Alzheimer's Association Research Framework. A stands for amyloid, such as amyloid PET or a beta protein in spinal fluid or plasma. T stands for tau or tangles as measured by PET scan or spinal fluid or now plasma as well. And N stands for neurodegeneration, which can be measured as atrophy on MRI, uh, glucose, abnormal glucose metabolism on PET scan, or pro other proteins such as total tau and spinal fluid and neurofilament light chain and spinal fluid. So we've sort of categorized these uh, biomarkers into these three major categories, which is the three, three major areas of Alzheimer's pathology. Certainly there are other pathologies as, as well. There are some tests that are commercially available now, such as CSFA beta 42, total tau and phosphotau, which is available from athenodiagnostics.com. There's a, a new blood test that just became available that Dr. Dickerson mentioned from C2M Diagnostics, measuring the ratio of A-beta 42 to 40 in uh, plasma. So this is our first blood test for Alzheimer's disease that's commercially available. Unfortunately, we in the clinical world are sort of frustrated because getting coverage or insurance coverage, Medicare and third-party payers, um, is difficult to impossible for a lot of these mm -hmm. tests, including the amyloid PET scan and certainly the tau PET scan. So we can get them um, in research studies, but we can't yet get them clinically. And I think that probably won't change until we have more effective medications. So we're kind of in this, this difficult area where these clinical, these biomarker tests are becoming available in research, but not really in clinical care. So certainly we have a lot of work to do to translate these tests. I see. So it's really kind of a, a limbo. I mean, it's almost like you need A plus B in order to get to C. You need the test. You need the test that will lead you to the treatment, and therefore we can get it to the patient. There, there is another test that's uh, a little bit easier to get clinically, which is the uh, glucose PET scan. Uh, this is uh, particularly helpful in distinguishing frontotemporal dementia from Alzheimer's dementia and really is the only indication where it might be available clinically. There's a very different pattern of abnormality in, in these two dementias, so it's helpful for, um, for diagnosis. And then finally, genetic testing is not really covered. 
for example, there's a genetic test available for the uh, familial Alzheimer mutations, as well as the APOE genotype, which is the major uh, genetic risk factor for sporadic Alzheimer's disease. Many of our patients get their own uh, Alzheimer risk gene, the APOE gene, from direct-to-consumer tests, such as available at 23andMe, which also tells you your risk uh, for Parkinson's disease genes as well, and, and many other diseases. So some of our patients come to us uh, reporting that they have a risk gene for Alzheimer's disease. Oh, wow. Let's turn to um, the paper and the editorial. Um, what are your key takeaways from this study? And, and the commentary. Uh, Dr. Turner, let's start with you. Um, I, this is a, a very interesting study. It looked at uh, plasma phospho tau 217, which means it was phosphorylated on the 217 site of the phospho tau. And they studied patients who were cognitively normal. Some of them were at risk for Alzheimer's disease, which means they have a positive amyloid PET scan or they're called prodromal Alzheimer's disease. They also looked at a group of patients with mild cognitive impairment which means that they're having cognitive problems, but their function is still relatively intact and preserved. And so they looked at the uh, plasma phosphotau 217 and looked at uh, amyloid PET and uh, spinal fluid uh, levels of, as well of, of the tau and the phosphotau. And they found that there were increases in all tau biomarkers associated with a positive amyloid PET scan. They found that there was increased plasma PTAU 217 preceded the changes in tau pathology as detected by PET scan. So this indicates that it's one of the first and earliest indicators of Alzheimer pathology. It moves us earlier and earlier in the Alzheimer's disease spectrum, going from prodromal Alzheimer's to mild cognitive impairment to uh, Alzheimer's disease. So it was a very important study. It's a very interesting and exciting findings. Uh, there were, of course, some limitations to this. Uh, these studies uh, are testing uh, very small amounts of these proteins, uh, so they use very sophisticated methodologies, uh, mass spec uh, and Samoa technologies to detect very low levels of these proteins in plasma. So we're not quite sure how generalizable this is going to be once it hits you know, a wider uh, population uh, because they're very specialized methodologies at specialized academic centers and companies. And of course, as is usual for a lot of clinical research, the population sample lacked uh, diversity. And obviously, we'd want to use this in a diverse population in the future. So more testing needs to be done, particularly to, uh, in longitudinal uh, studies to see how well this test predicts uh, uh, progression along the al Alzheimer's spectrum and how good this test really is on a practical level. But uh, I think in the future, we'll probably use blood tests such as phosphotal 217 as a screening measure to screen populations to decide who is going to get the more invasive spinal tap or who is going to get the more expensive amyloid PET scan or tau PET scan. So this uh, paper was very important and a breakthrough, and it looks like this may be the best indicator so far of early Alzheimer pathology. Dr. Dickerson, do you agree? Yes, I think that this and other papers that have come out in the last uh, year or so have really gotten a lot of us very enthusiastic about the plasma measurements of various forms of tau pathology in particular, um, also amyloid. Uh, and I agree with everything Dr. Turner said. I think that um, we need more studies that look at these things in various types of uh, diversity in terms of clinical uh, populations. So 
people that come to see us who have different pathologies in the brain, people who come to see us at different levels of impairment, um, and people from different uh, uh, potentially genetic or biological uh, backgrounds. Um, and so I think that's what is being done now is to try to look at, look at those broader populations so that we can have a better handle. Because this was a highly selected, as Dr. Turner said, research volunteer sample that is not representative of a clinical population. And then there are the issues of standardization of assays uh, so that multiple labs could perform this type of assay and get the same results. So we've got a long ways to go, I think, before it's available in the clinic and useful in the clinic. But I think this was a groundbreaking paper that really is um, motivating a lot of people to devote substantial resources to trying to improve upon this and make it more generalizable. Let's talk a little bit about the preclinical phase of Alzheimer's disease. And, and I, I think, Dr. Turner, you touched on this a bit. Why would it be ideal to discover a diagnostic modality um, that could diagnose the disease earlier? And I, I think this paper kind of was pointing to that as well. Dr. Turner? Yeah, I think these uh, biomarker technologies discoveries in the last 10 to 20 years have allowed us to redefine the Alzheimer's spectrum. Uh, before, we just had the clinical uh, categories of dementia due to Alzheimer's disease and mild cognitive impairment. So MCI is when cognition declines, but function is still intact. And dementia is when cognition and function are going downhill. Uh, but with these biomarkers, we've found that there's a, a 10 to 20, perhaps 30-year prodromal stage where these pathologies are beginning to accumulate in the brain before there's any sign or indication of any cognitive or memory problem. So this allowed us to move the spectrum and redefine the spectrum to a prodromal stage with normal cognition, but Alzheimer pathologies developing, and then the mild cognitive impairment stage, and then the Alzheimer's stage. And this allowed us also to shift our uh, focus in clinical trials, uh, treatment trials, to earlier stages. So instead of recruiting patients with Alzheimer's, for example, we would recruit patients with mild cognitive impairment or even prodromal Alzheimer's disease. And this led us to starting the first prevention trials of Alzheimer's disease. So we can identify older individuals who are cognitively normal but at risk for Alzheimer's, for example, by having a positive amyloid PET scan and see if we can prevent the onset of mild cognitive impairment and Alzheimer's disease. These are just starting or ongoing. We won't have the first results for another one or two or three years, uh, so we don't know if this is going to work or not, um, this strategy is going to work. But I think we're sort of thinking of this along the lines of um, high cholesterol building up in blood vessels, like 10 to 20 years before someone develops a heart attack or a stroke, and treating with a drug such as a statin to lower cholesterol when someone is totally asymptomatic. They don't know that their cholesterol is elevated, but if you treat with a statin, you can lower the risk of heart attack and stroke. So I think we're sort of using that as a parallel model to identify individuals with high amyloid in the brain and perhaps treat them with a drug or agent that would lower the amyloid and therefore decrease their risk of MCI and Alzheimer's. This is all, of course, a working hypothesis based on the amyloid hypothesis, which may or may not be correct. We may have the right target or we might not have the right target. So um, we'll, we'll know uh, much more in a few years when we get some readouts from these prevention trials. That would be amazing. Um, and, and Dr. Dickerson, I want to I turn to you and, and let's talk about the patients diagnosed 
and um, their families. I mean, they're very aware if they've been diagnosed or your family of somebody who's been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. You probably read everything. They, you get yourself educated. You see these trials, and then, but there's no treatment. So what are the patients that you see coming to you, um, and what are they telling you, and they're seeking treatments, and what do you tell them at this point? It's very uh, frustrating to go through the process, especially with um, someone who's at a particularly mild stage of uh, symptoms when they're still functioning largely pretty well, but they have amnesia, memory loss, or they have aphasia, language difficulties, but they're largely independent still, doing pretty well in their day-to-day -day life. And they come to you for an evaluation with their family member, and you end up going through the whole process that we've talked about already and saying, you know, I'm afraid that this does appear to be the earliest symptomatic stage of Alzheimer's disease. We're reasonably confident about that. And then, of course, the next questions are about treatment and prognosis. And we always have to say, we don't know how fast this is going to progress or how slowly it's going to progress, but it's, it's going to get worse. And we have treatments that are proven to work to help some of the symptoms. And we have a lot of treatments that are, show some evidence to, to help support the patient and the family in the course of their uh, symptoms and their journey. But, uh, and we have treatments for mood and behavioral symptoms, which are so important and often don't get the attention they deserve in either evaluation or in um, monitoring and treatment and can have a major impact on quality of life. But at the end of the day, we can't do anything to change the course of the illness. We're gonna do the best we can to monitor it. We're gonna do the best we can to treat symptoms. We're gonna do the best we can to support you, but we can't change the course of the illness. What we really desperately need are what Dr. Turner mentioned, which are disease-modifying therapies that you could start when a person is at the mildest stage of symptomatic illness, or hopefully even before they have symptoms, and slow down the rate of decline. That would lead to a substantial improvement in quality of life if there really is a slowing of disease progression. And I think we're seeing better and better progress on this effort in clinical trials, but I think what we really want to see is a meaningful slowing of decline for people that helps them maintain quality of life for a longer period of time. And I'm not sure that we're quite there yet, but I feel optimistic that all of this investment in biomarkers and outcome measures and earlier diagnosis will get us there um, you know, as soon as possible. Do you encourage uh, your patients to join clinical trials? Always. You know, a lot of people come to us in academic medical centers seeking treatment trials, even if they're in the research stage and they might be in the placebo group and they might not uh, be taking a drug that ultimately benefits them, but they're advancing our understanding and the science of the field. They, that's empowering to people. So we always talk to every patient and family about the um, clinical trials and other kinds of studies that they may be eligible for, because even if the study is not a treatment trial, even if it's an observational biomarker study, it's advancing our knowledge. It's ultimately going to lead to better treatments of the future. And for many patients and families, this is an incredibly empowering thing to be part of. Dr. Turner, anything to add? Uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, negativity out there. You know, there is no cure for Alzheimer's disease. So a lot of people take that as like, why get evaluated? You know, why get these treatments that uh, have very little benefit? Uh, why join a clinical trial? Um, so I think we sort of have to battle against that. Um, we 
really don't have cures for a lot of things like hypertension and diabetes and high cholesterol. They're mostly not cures. They're more of a chronic management type of uh, issue. So I think that will probably happen with Alzheimer's disease as well. Even HIV is not cured. It's managed with medications. And so I think we have to sort of get around this, you know, because there is no cure, I don't, you know, why should I get an evaluation? Um, there are, um, of course, we look for things that are easily treatable, you know, depression, thyroid dysfunction, vitamin B12 deficiency, sleep apnea. There are things that are treatable that can help with their memory problems. And sometimes we discover medications that they shouldn't be taking that are adversely impacting their memory. So I would encourage people to get an evaluation if they're having any memory or cognitive issues, uh, to look for, uh, uncover these uh, sources of memory. Uh, causes causes of memory problems. Um, there are, of course, treatments available. There are four drugs that are FDA approved for Alzheimer's disease and for the cognitive and functional decline. And we recommend these and we prescribe these. I know there's a lot of uh, negativity about these drugs and a lot of uh, discontinuation and noncompliance, but um, they do have some proven benefit or they would not have gotten FDA approved. So we recommend those as well. And then finally, we encourage everyone to join a clinical study, a clinical trial. It doesn't necessarily have to be a drug. It could be you know, a biomarker study validating and discovering new biomarkers or testing a new treatment um, because we think we're on the right track with our clinical trials. We're not sure yet. Uh, obviously, we're waiting for more successes, particularly with the anti-amyloid antibodies, for example. Uh, but my uh, guesstimate is that less than 1% of patients who are eligible actually join any research whatsoever. So I think we really need to increase this number and we need to increase the diversity of our clinical trials. So certainly we encourage people to learn about research opportunities and join clinical studies if they're interested and eligible. Awesome. Um, in our next podcast, um, you both will be joining me again and we'll be talking about pharmaceutical treatments um, and seeing what is in the pipeline and and hopefully what may be coming soon. Um, but I think this was a really great discussion and I really thank you both for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Remember to visit journalclubpodcast.com forward slash AD1 to receive your credit and evaluate this program. For our other neurology podcasts, please visit journalclubpodcast.com forward slash neurology. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you.